This New America NYC and Broadly Speaking event was recorded on June 2nd, 2015, and is titled Unvarnished, and features Sarah Maslin-Near, reporter for the New York Times and author of the Unvarnished series, and Liza Mundy, director of New America's Breadwinning and Caregiving program. As you know, she uh, reported and wrote this incredible unvarnished series for the paper, which, uh, as we were talking about beforehand, is like every every 14-year-old who goes into journalism thinks, you know, this is what happens with every story that you write. It has this um, unbelievable uh, outpouring of response, and and uh, it in fact doesn't always happen that way, but it sure did. Uh, happened this time, and we have a lot of journalists in the audience, so we will definitely talk about the journalistic nuts and bolts of reporting the story, and and hope as well to talk about the larger issues that it raised. And so, can you? This is a very general question, but can you talk about the reporting? Because I mean, what's so striking is is now you're experiencing what happens when you know a piece is published, and there's this you know outpouring of interest and reaction. But you had at least a year of the of the the most unglamorous, you know, tough, shoe-leather type of reporting at all hours of the day and night, you know, begging people to talk to you. And, and just, just talk about what you did and how you did it and how you approached it. So I had my, uh, a group of translators read the ethnic press. That was the first step to find out what they wrote about nail salons for the word nail salon and the word in Spanish, uñas, um, did in Korean and Chinese. And in, uh, we did that for about a month. And then I followed up on every person who was mentioned in it. And then one of my uh, translators, Jia Ham, who's a reporter for the Korea Times, incredibly talented, and he works for me on his days off. Um, he, every morning, he wakes up when he works for Korea Times, and there are very few Korean last names. There's Park, Kim, and Lee, and a couple more. And every morning, he searches those in uh, law databases and, and court records. Um, and that's how he finds all his stories. So he started doing that. <laughs> so he started doing that for me. Wow. Um, and then we cross-referenced him with the word nails or the word spa. Uh, then I started uh, pulling the cases that, that he found this incredibly creative way and then reaching out to the lawyers. And my thought was anybody who is uh, bold enough to level a lawsuit while being you know, an undocumented immigrant, because you still have the right to get compensated and sue no matter what your immigration status. Those people I thought would be most likely to speak to me. Mm -hmm. And I like to say I started with the bravest and I ended up <laughs> with the most fearful. And my protagonist was one of the most fearful people I met. Um, but if I can go the, on. The I'm, woman who's in the very, who's in the very. Yes, Jake Ren, yes. the young, young Chinese woman, the first yes. story. Um, so I had a major breakthrough via these cases. Then I met a guy called Deeping Song, also called Sam, who was part of a lawsuit uh, for the Babby salons. And they got awarded the most of any jury was, uh, had ever awarded nail salon lawsuits, something $400,000 these four workers were owed from a chain of salons, more than they even asked for. Um, and they still haven't been paid barely a fraction of it because the person has uh, disappeared, <laughs> as is typical. Um, and Deeping Song, I said, what did you do in your salon? He said, I was the driver. I did one of those like record scratch, like, like I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, I didn't ask what you did for your delivery company. I asked what you did for your salon. And he said, oh, I'm the driver. He said, um, when a salon is just outside New York City, they're all still populated by women from Flushing, Queens, and Sunset Park, Brooklyn, and Chinatown in Manhattan. Um, and they sleep at the salons or in a barracks provided in the salon. So when you go to Greenwich, Connecticut, you ever notice there's not a lot of Chinese or Korean people walking around Greenwich, Connecticut, but there they are in the salons. Those people are imported and warehoused in those places. Um, 
And so Deeping said, in the morning, when you walk to Flushing around 8 a.m., and lo and behold, he showed me, these women wait on the street corners like migrant workers to be picked up for jobs at salons. And that became my hunting ground. And for three months, I went every morning at 8 a.m. to 8.30, 5 uh, a.m. And interestingly, around 9, the streets got empty, and then men replaced the women, and they're going to restaurants, and they're going to construction jobs. Um, and uh, that became my hunting ground, and I went with a translator in tow every morning for three months. Will you tell me your story? That's, that's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful procedural reminder that... that um, that reporting really is, it's it, sometimes like a police procedural, just day after day. Um, and, and not really throwing stuff against the wall because you were actually very systematic about, about all these things developing I tried, a strategy. Yeah, I tried them all simultaneously. Right. I right. think that's the key. You know, when you try one route and it fails, it's devastating. When you try one route and it fails and you have four others open, right. you know, it's just Right. And you were also going to salons sometimes, right? No. You, no. Uh, I only went to salons at the very end. Yeah. The industry is incredibly collusive, mm -hmm. uh, which was told to me early on by some uh, labor lawyers who said that um, they find that when they're owed money, when they're found to have owed money to workers, like the Babby case, they sell their assets, lickety split, mm. to a cousin for a dollar. And they said they all do it in the same way, which makes them think it's actually taught from salon owner to salon owner. And that, to me, indicated an incredible collusiveness. Um, so I was afraid if I tipped them off... Right they would shut down. Right. I thought you said, I thought you said in, in maybe not in the piece itself, but uh, maybe a piece about your piece, uh, that, that sometimes to get workers to talk to you, you would get a manicure? Yeah, at the very end. The so very the last end. three months, because yeah. right, we right. lost a lot of workers, yeah. they, sometimes they would talk to us and they'd divulge all their secrets. They'd say, I've been waiting 10 years to tell my story. I've been waiting for this moment. And then they freak out that they said too much and right. disappear. Right. But they told us where they worked. So, you know, square shape around, you know, right. <laughs> got you. Right. <laughs> That's very strategic. And did you sense toward the end then were that were, were, were owners um, starting to realize that this was going to be published? Were they starting to shut down or react in anticipation? I reached out to a lot of the heads of the industry. There's a Korean American Nail Salon Association. And what was really interesting, working with translators, I sort of worked like a foreign correspondent with translators and fixers almost. Um, a lot of times they would turn, particularly to Jiha, um, and they would say, in, I would be interviewing them, and they'd turn to him in Korea and they'd go, don't tell her this part. And Jiha would say, he said, don't tell you this part. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we have, there's a quote, or a paraphrase of a quote in the story that um, one of the owners said uh, to Jiha, uh, Jiha was trying to arrange a meeting between me and him, um, and he said, the truth is, I don't want to meet with her because so many don't pay wages. I don't want to hurt the industry. And Jiha was like, <laughs> um, but it, it, so they were sort of in the end stonewalling me and colluding a little bit, but not as bad as I'd hoped, maybe because I danced the dance. Right, right. Now this is just a digression, but it just to go back to one thing that you said at the beginning. A lot of the um, a lot of the foreign language press here is still print media. You mm -hmm. said, which is interesting. I hadn't really thought about. Yeah, that, but it's true. And mm -hmm. why why is that true? There's not. Oh, I didn't think about that. Um, no, I, I think it's the readership. Um, there, a lot of the Chinese in, uh, in uh, particularly Flushing, are older people. I think the younger generation of Chinese coming here speak English. Mm -hmm. um, they're coming for school, right. so they're reading right. the Times, right. et cetera. Right. Um, I, I wonder why it is. I, I just think, you know, not everybody has a smartphone on them right. still. Right, right, yes. So, um, 
I'm sure that a lot of people in this room are, are have been following the outcome and the reaction to your story. But in case in case people have missed some part of it, can you just talk about what the immediate response was? Yeah, if you miss that, leave. Come on. Um, no, uh, it's really been wild. Um, in three days after it was published, not even published in print, published online. It came out in print like two days later at a, a delay. Um, the governor um, instituted on an emergency basis uh, several regulations that actually come from all sides of the industry. Um, the second story, which we haven't talked about, is, is about health, yeah. that there is a, a loophole, essentially, in the federal law that allows cosmetic chemicals to go into products untested. Mm -hmm. uh, FDA, there's uh, pre-market testing for food, obviously. You, you know, your banana bread's not going to kill you. Your drugs are pre-tested. There's no pre-market testing for cosmetics. I'm talking about shampoo, soap, everything. It's very unnerving. The law was written in 1938. Um, hasn't been updated since. And so you and I are affected by this, but it's a different order of magnitude for these women who are surrounded in, by it all day long. So um, that part, the state reacted very swiftly. Um, New York salons went from having almost zero health and safety regulations for the manicures uh, to now um, everything is going to be considered a hazardous substance in a salon because of this loophole, because you can't tell if it is or isn't. Um, so they're taking a precautionary approach. Manicures are going to have to wear gloves the entire procedure. They're going to have to wear respirator masks, not those dinky hospital masks that are just for show. Um, they're going to have to wear goggles when they pour acetone, because uh, a lot of them suffer from burning eyes, bleeding noses. Um, and there's going to, in a few, um, in a month, I think there's going to be a mandatory ventilation requirement. But on another side, there's also going to be a new insurance, uh, which is very unusual a new bonding required for salons, which is a type of insurance against defrauding your workers. So if you defraud your workers uh, and found you're defrauding them, you can't disappear like Deep Ping Song's uh, bosses did. Um, and a, a bunch of different things that are actually some about the licensing for manicures that are going to give them bargaining power. Because what happens right now is so many work on license. The boss says, look, you're not supposed to be here anyway. You're going to take what you can get. So it's going to be now a graduated program where you can be a trainee and move on up. And, and if you're not well-versed in the details of this industry, you don't understand how powerful that is. I mean, you're, you're walking, you're slinking into your workplace thinking that you're a criminal and your boss is telling you that and you don't think you have any recourse if they say, I'm not going to pay you today. You, know, you weren't supposed to be here anyway, you didn't do a good job. And this will give them bargaining power. And what about, um, you, these are all state then regulations as opposed to, yeah. is there any move for federal regulations? Because obviously the, the health consequences yeah. of this, I mean, it, all of the issues I'm sure are relevant throughout, throughout the country, but per, per, there, maybe there are slightly higher wages in some other states or localities, but the health consequences are going to be, you know, are going to have effect anywhere. Has there, has there been any federal movement? Yeah, and they're going to have an effect for everyone. I mean... With, when you talk about this, people think you sound like a crazy hippie, you know, and you're like, oh, like there's brain, our brain waves are affected by the cell phones, you know, like, but no, there's literally no pre-market testing of any of the stuff that goes on your skin or your face or your nails. Europe uh, bans 1,300 chemicals from cosmetics. Uh, we ban 11 as a country. We put the same stuff that's illegal in Europe on us. Um, and there, Senator Schumer um, and another senator who I can't remember. Uh, have uh, written a law, uh, uh, written a open letters. A couple others have followed them to uh, Occupational Health and Safety Administration, right, right, yeah. um, to the FDA, to see what you can do. There was a chemical in popcorn that was destroying people, and on an emergency basis, they changed the regulation. Um, and they're asking if they can do that for some of the uh, endocrine disruptors and uh, carcinogens. But um, I, I don't see as much fervent movement. 
And what's it like just personally having spent, you know, a year or more doing this, um, you know, reporting and nobody's, I mean, it's, it's not that it's obscure, but you're day to day, you know, embedded in this community. And then all of a sudden there is this reaction. Is it, is it gratifying? Is it overwhelming? Oh no, it's like nothing. It's amazing. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's totally cool. It's concerning. <laughs> right, mom? <laughs> Oh my God, I mean, it's just, what it's just wild. Yeah. yeah, it's wild. You know, and, and look, we can be excited about it. It mean, it remains to be said, uh, to see if it, if it happens, if change happens. Um, uh, Nina Bernstein, a very, very talented reporter at the Times, she said, you know, it sounds a little bit crass, not crass, um, uh, pessimistic or cynical, that's the word. Uh, she said, you know, journals have a symbiotic relationship in a way with uh, the politicians. So we write about them doing something wrong, they fix it, then we write about them fixing it. We feel gratified, they feel gratified. You know, what, what really happens? And that's the challenge, um, especially, you know, it's, it's, we get so little credit as journalists in the audience that when you do, it's like, ah, yes, awesome. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not credit unless there's a real change. Right. But, but that said, a lot of people ask me, what do I do? What do you want done next? And my answer is, I'm not an advocate. Right. And there is a line you have to draw. I found a good story. It needed to be told. I told it. And I think in order to maintain my integrity in my future, my profession, I have to draw the line there. Right. Your job is done there. And the, the analogy that one thinks of is Jody Cantor's great piece earlier this year, and we also did an event with Jody um, around her piece looking at software uh, just-in-time scheduling and the havoc that it wreaks on the lives of uh, lower-income part-time workers, specifically at Starbucks. And that piece was also incredibly well and powerfully reported and had a huge and immediate impact on uh, on Starbucks in particular immediately changed its its practices. And it is always striking to see pieces that have that kind of immediate impact and of course to watch and see whether it will be lasting. I think, you know, one question that we were talking about in the green room beforehand is journalism has always had a role in muckraking and exposing workplace abuses, um, you know, terrible living conditions, be it the uh, photographs taken during the Depression or the Dust Bowl or um, the Industrial Era. Um, and, and so I think this is in a, you know, remarkably proud and powerful tradition. You do get the sense now that what we don't have as much is, is a labor movement or some kind of recourse that these women would have had so that in a way your story wouldn't have had to have been written. Mm -hmm. That, that uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on what could have happened before this? That, you know, the, the fact that, that, that there was no union uh, mm -hmm. supporting these women or that the regulations didn't already exist, that no government regulator had gone poking around in these nail salons. Uh, you know, is journalism all we have? now in, in terms of exposing these kinds of conditions? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, one of the most startling things in my story was every time I asked the people who are supposed to be watching, uh, what it, what's, what's it look like? What have, you, what have you been seeing? They stopped answering the phone calls for a month, and then they were like, coming into our office. And they were like, we did our first ever nail salon sweep right. last week. Right. And I was like, oh, look at that. You know, and, and that was incredibly startling, and, and I mean, adventure to say disturbing, um, that nobody was watching these proverbial hen houses. And uh, I, I mean, I, I, I just don't know. Is it a bad thing that uh, journalists are, as you say, I, I don't know if it's true, are the last uh, remaining, uh, you know, flag bearer for these people or for where labor unions used to uh, 
used to come in and to defend them. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it makes journalists sharper, this knowledge. Uh, I was just looking at the Pulitzer wall, um, giving someone a tour at the Times, and we have this wall of Pulitzer, and I saw this story about how races lived in America, and there was a story um, about that in the uh, slaughterhouses, the jobs are split up. Uh, who gets what job is determined on race. It won in 2001. Um, that I think the blacks did the gruesome slaughtering and the whites did the chopping and packing. Um, and I, I just thought about my story that it, it was, there's also a race-based caste system right. in the nail salon industry, that the Hispanics are paid the least and the Chinese above them and the Koreans on top um, in modern-day New York City. And, uh, you know, uh, my dad used to say, Ein chadash al Hashemesh, nothing new under the sun. But that knowledge that we still have to keep um, in Hebrew, that we still have to keep fighting without taking on too much of an advocate tone, um, maybe aware of the vacuum makes journalism all that more important and all the more timeless. And talk also about the reader reaction. We've been talking about sort of the regulatory, governmental, institutional reaction. Um, but readers had a visceral reaction to, to your piece. And one of the other things that we were talking about beforehand or thinking is, you know, also with Jody Cantor's piece, these are incredibly powerfully well-reported stories about conditions um, surrounding like the sort of small luxuries that many people avail themselves of. And does that have anything to do with, with the overwhelming personal response to these pieces? I know that a lot of readers now come to you and say, well, what should I do about this? You know, should I not patronize nail, nail salons? Should I boycott them? Should I only go to some? Uh, and, and they're looking to you for answers. But what do you make of the intense Personal reaction. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on that. That's, that's a brilliant thought. That uh, it's because it is connected to the small luxuries. And something I've been saying um, when I'm trying to wrap my head around this unbelievable response, particularly readers. I, it was a trending topic on Twitter globally. The first time a New York Times article has ever that's ever happened. I got six thousand three hundred tweets at me in the first two days, wow. and I responded to all of them. Um, you know, I was like really into it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it was well, overwhelming. We did a Facebook chat, an unprecedented response to that. Um, and, oh, also, if you look in Facebook, there's like a other file. That's where like people you don't know email you. Like look in that file. Right. You'll find like... The other file that messages that people have... Oh, yeah. You'll find like fans, ex-boyfriends. It's right. like really intense. <laughs> um, so uh, the... Here's something I've been saying a lot, that the nature of a manicure, its very nature, is a deeply intimate act. Actually, in academia, they call it intimate labor. Um, you hold hands with another person, interlace fingers, and you look at them across the table. And I think my story revealed that we never truly saw them. And I think there's a level of a complicitness that the consumer feels in this that really made it not you know, a devastating story about a woman crushed under a uh, factory in Bangladesh. Yes, you wear the shirt she slaved over, but you don't feel her. You don't feel her hands. Right. Um, you know, in Abu Dhabi, uh, NYU, we learned about the um, workers essentially is enslaved to build that. Um, it was Abu Dhabi, yeah, enslaved to build that campus. Um, and maybe we know someone who went to NYU, but we didn't go into their homes. Or we didn't ask them about their children. And, mm -hmm. and um, I think the nature of it being an incredibly intimate act is is why it went so quote-unquote viral, but also had that, that resonance.
That that absolutely rings true. And I think of some of the scenes. You have the scene of the woman who's getting, I think, a pedicure, and I think she says one thing to mm-hmm. the uh, to the. Don't touch woman. my heel. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm sure that many people felt a sense of complicitness mm-hmm. there. Um, well, I've been her. Yeah, yeah. You you know you're looking at your phone. And, yeah. Um, and I, the other the other. Um, aspect of this that I wondered if there was any reaction to in terms of regulation or response is, um, it's not central to the story, but it's it's there uh, threaded through, is the child care conditions mm. of of the women that, that, you know, not only were the women rounded up and transported, but in some cases they're depositing their children tw- for 24 hours with, I mean, there seems to be a sort of informal kind of rounding up to the children, and um, mm. and was there any response to that? I, you know, it, there wasn't a lot of, um, I had so much more on that. I had so much more on this whole story. I have characters who, you know, we cut out, and it was like losing a limb. Um, my mom will test that I yeah. cried. Yeah. <laughs> Chung is like just one line now, mom. <laughs> I remember her. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the... The childcare thing is very interesting. And actually, so as the Times, I realized we'd covered this phenomenon, I'm putting in quotes, of Asian, oh, did I go out? Uh, Asian people, particularly from China, sending their children almost at birth back to China to be raised by their family members, their, their grandparents or the, the child's grandparents. I don't know if you've ever heard about this, that it's like, we, we've written stories about it. We've written a bunch of different angles, like what it's like when they come back to kindergarten and kindergartens have to put in this whole new language center because the kid's very confused. And, and we've written about it from different angles. I always found it interesting. I realized how out of touch we were doing this story. It's not a quirky phenomenon that the Asian community does culturally. It is a move of desperation. Nobody wants to send their baby away across the world and not be with them till they're five years old. Right. If you work all the time, if you make too little money, you cannot be a mother, you cannot be a father. And so there are these communities of of care providers, but in reality, people outsource their children to unbelievably terrible results. I have a woman um, who didn't make it in the story, uh, Yuki Lee, that she sent her baby back to China, um, and this was to come back when she's five. She came back when she was two. She wondered at it. She got to the airport, and the baby was racked with cerebral palsy, which is a, a disorder that uh, is inflicted. It's not genetic. It's a, a, from abuse as an infant. You can develop cerebral palsy, and she realized that the family had abused the baby, and so she got this baby back. And this was this, you know. I, and I spoke to Michael Luo, my editor, about adding. Uh, this story, and he said, you know, um, people won't believe it. It seems too extreme. It seems like we're just slathering it on, you know, that, that it's bad enough. We got the goods on it. You don't need to, to ramp it up because it seems so unbelievable. But that's the real consequence of exploitation, that Yuki Lee has a child that where last year she stood in her window and she thought about jumping with the baby, you know, and that's, that's the consequence of enslaving these people. Right. And of course, when you point out the health consequences, you also point out the health consequences. I mean, the, the women are miscarrying mm-hmm. as a result of the chemicals, or probably as a result probably. of the chemicals. And there are children who are developmentally disabled and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and probably will be affected for the rest of their lives. And then, as we've said, there are the children who are being basically sort of rounded up and deposited in some kind of child care. With who? There. With who? Yeah. With who? Yeah. Uh, a neighbor, someone who's available. Right. So someone just, who will take $1,000 for a child care. I, I don't know. If you would 
give away your most precious thing for a thousand dollars a month for six days a week, you know, and, and there's something really crazy happening, um, in this country, in this world that for different sorts of people, a different level of compassion is, is acceptable. Right. And then there are the, 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 in your, in your piece, there are the parents who are coming here and living with their adult children. And there was, I think one, um, young woman who eventually sort of graduated out of the manicurist uh, role, but her mother was... Uh, oh, yeah. She, oh, she did manicurist. She's still a manicurist. Right. She was still yeah. a manicurist, but then her mother was mother becoming a manicurist, and she was having to sort of cope with seeing her mother in that yeah. position as well, which would be um, also very psychologically difficult. Uh, but just the, the, the family relations, how, how did you decide who, who the characters were going to be? Um, it was a, a lot, uh, a very interesting editing process. I actually wrote a lot of chunks of the story and character lists, and we sort of storyboarded on, on big whiteboards. Um, and then we erased it all, and I had to do it all over again. And that happened 11 times. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I love you, Mike Luo. I don't know if you're here. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, no, he's, he's fabulous, but we had a lot of, uh, you know, really engaged discussions about who, what character embodies this the most. And actually, so Jing Ren and Michelle's son, or Sue's son, are cousins. And Michelle was the first one we met. We met her on the street corner, uh, Yuhan Liu, and uh, I, she's my translator. We met her, and she was perfect. I mean, she's so well-spoken. She's articulate. She has unbelievable, lofty, heartbreaking thoughts about, uh, about everything. Um, and uh, it became... Quite, and she was open to us, which was another, you need to get them willing to talk to you. And it became immediate that she was too, uh, she was too unusual. She's such a proactive, special girl. I mean, if she had another chance in life, she'd be a Fortune 500 CEO. She heard about this place called Florida and got on a bus sight unseen because she thought, it's warm there, pedicures got to be year-round, I can make more money, and just flung herself at it. Her Instagram is looks like she lives in the Ritz-Carlton. She puts a champagne glass with melon balls for breakfast, but only I know that it's resting on the back of a broken cabinet door that she uses as a table. Um, and she, she was too uh, much an outlier. Right. But then she took us into her home, uh, and she dresses, like, magnificently. Is she, she the one who steams everything? Yeah. Before she lives in? Yeah. Uh, she took us into her home, and she lives in a doorman building in Flushing. We walk upstairs, and I'm thinking, this is pretty nice. And... The, her one bedroom is split between six people and it's curtains. Um, and tucked in the corner in the lampless dark is another little girl. And that was her cousin. And that was who became the protagonist. Mm -hmm. I said to Jing Ren, how much do you make? And she went, hmm? I said, well, you've been working three months. How much do you make? And she said, and then I was like, I'm asking in Chinese. <laughs> like, what is? And then I realized I asked the wrong questions. When are you going to start making money? And Jing Ren embodies somebody who's been beaten down by this. Actually, didn't again, didn't put this in the story um, because it seemed over the top, but it, it was true. She didn't leave her house for a month when she arrived in America because she was just too scared. And uh, Michelle was in Florida, and um, she didn't buy a lamp. So she sat in the pitch black in the, in the middle of the winter in New York City in this god-awful place because she just didn't know how to buy a lamp. So the so the the final selection of characters had to do with whether they embodied or were emblematic of of, of themes or 
Um, issues or situations. You know, we all, we all know from the, unfortunate, the, from the Rolling Stone article, some of the criticisms right. of, of it, and I don't know if they're accurate, have been that they were taken with the extremeness of the example. Yeah. And I think, not knowing anything about the Rolling Stone, because that happened while I was in the middle, I really wanted to find the norm, because the norm was bad enough. Yeah, the norm is definitely bad enough. Yeah, mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Um, and just another topic uh, that we briefly talked about in the green room was just the general issue of uh, you said that you were interested in the topic of women in the media and with regard to this story I suppose the question to ask around that would be um, obviously it's good to have women reporters because then they start uh, they might be getting a manicure at, at they're awesome also and yeah, awesome uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they might think well there's an interesting story there uh, and um, that's that's uh, I think probably a, a no-brainer there. But what are the what are the other issues that you think are live or current or important to raise in terms of women? In terms of women in the media, yeah. Um, hmm. I I mean, my my biggest issue uh, about women in the media is or not issue, not issue with that phrase. Is, is that, is the diversity of viewpoints. I, I think that the Times has made strides to having a more diverse newsroom, but they have a long, long way to go. They're, where are all the black male reporters? Right. I, 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 and where are they? Right. You know, and, and why are they not being cultivated? Uh, where are people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, educational backgrounds? You see things differently depending on what eyes you're looking through. Right. Um, could a man have done my story? Absolutely. Women, these women would have talked to a man, but would they have? I don't know. Oh, my, my translators were male, yeah, yeah, many yeah, of them. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the thinking that only X person has access to X subject is, is a dangerous thing because right. the flip side of it is right. could a woman talk to that man? Right. You know, could a woman go into that locker room? Right. Um, she can, she does, and she's coming for you. Right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I have uh, I started a group at the New York Times um, called the Old Girls Club which is a little bit of a play on what journalism typically is, the old boys club. Um, and I started it for two reasons. One, uh, Jill Abramson, when she gave her uh, sort of acceptance speech, when she editorship, um, it was, uh, she said, I want to thank my girl posse. And I thought to myself, I don't have a girl posse. I have girl frenemies, you know, in, in terms of uh, <laughs> professionally. I, I, my, the dark side of women in media. <laughs> I like you guys. Um, <laughs> uh, but in, in, in media, and then I also read Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants, and she says in the book um, that every time a new young woman writer would come to the writer's room, which is typically a male space, has been a male space, the existent woman writer would bristle. And she said, look, the more of us there are, the more there can be. And she said, she called that a girl-on-girl -girl hate crime. And I, it really resonated with me. I've written her a lot of fan letters. She hasn't responded. <laughs> her agent assures me they're well taken. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it, it's, um, I, and I thought, I, I said, I, I don't have a real adversarial approach, but I, I thought, if anything, these people are neutral, and, and if anything, they're, to me, they're a competition. And they're not. The more of us there are, the more there can be. And you can insert, you know, black, white, green, purple in that sentence, and it's 100% true. And so, um, I, we meet monthly with one actual old girl, though don't, we don't tell her she's, we think she's old. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's not limited to young people, it's just a person on the upward trajectory of their career who hasn't yet made it. That's the thing, you're, you're here and you want to be there. Um, and, we, and we talk about um, issues that face women 
um, the media. And the, the first meeting, uh, nobody came. <laughs> uh, except my uh, child. So it was you by yourself? No, it was my, me and my childhood best friend, Elizabeth A. Harris, who's a reporter at the Times, too, and we happen to sit a desk apart, and she has to come. Um, and now it's uh, more than 60 people at wow. every meeting. Yeah. Wow. And more than one old girl. Uh, once a month, we have old but girl. But not the same old girl. Not same girl. And, and uh, Gloria Steinem came to our last one, which was wow. awesome. Where do you have it? Uh, like a bar where old boys would have theirs. Yeah. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, I think the image I'm going to leave this conversation with also is the image of you being so immersed in this reporting and looking for ways to organize it on your spreadsheet and thinking about it and processing it and being so deeply immersed that you have that moment where you see, you know, the, the hierarchy between mm. um, different ethnic groups, you know, where you are just so deep into it that you see something really that nobody has seen or that you didn't expect to see. Mm -hmm. Just the benefits of, of really deep immersion and constant thinking and coming at it from different ways. It's uh, very inspirational to listen to you describe your, your method and, and your persistence and your Labrador uh, <laughs> love for what you do every day. And, um, and th thank you so much for doing this story and thank you so much for coming. Thank you all so much. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.